Exodus 3, brothers, turn to Exodus 3. Exodus 3. Nathan said we climbed a mountain last night. We're going to climb another one tonight. I'll read the text, I'll pray, and then we'll get to work. Exodus 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight while the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians Oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. If you would join me once more to pray together. Great God in heaven, would you please grant us now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, minds to understand, hearts to believe, affections stirred for you. Would you help us in this late hour to be attentive, 
to the word? And would you grant us a vision of you in this text that changes us forever? And would you grant the preacher strength? He is in weakness and fear and much trembling. In Christ's name I ask, amen. Well, we know the story well. Exodus 3 is a revelation of the covenant faithfulness of God. Moses was keeping the flocks of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. Now, for a man of his education and experience, uh, this was a poor man's job. It shows much about Moses' meekness and contentment, and it also affords us a beautiful picture of a man who at one time probably had access to the very heights of knowledge that the world had to offer. Yet in the calling and the revelation of God, he was brought to put his feet on the earth and receive a revelation of God that was utterly paradigmatic for him and the rest of his ministry as a servant in the house of God. It was indispensable, this revelation, for the people of God. I pray that's the same thing for you and me this evening as we attend to this very difficult topic of the simplicity of God. Everything we learn about Moses' ministry after this is tied to this encounter. The revelation of God in the bush was, among many other things, a space-time illustration of God's singularly simple being. Speaking on divine simplicity, however, is not so simple. And that's my task this evening. And I must admit to you, there's other texts that we could go to. God is spirit, John 4. God is light. God is love. But I believe this text to be adequate because it's, it's also overlooked in this subject. And it ties some things together, I hope, that we see by the end of this message. Now, to call a man simple probably is an insult. You know, we call a guy simple-minded. He doesn't have the sophistication in life to live life to the fullest. But to call God simple, I submit to you, is to glorify him in such a way that pushes the limits of our complicated minds. Perhaps nowhere else are we brought to the precipice of the eternal and ineffable glory of God than when we, than when we consider God's simplicity. And like many things with God, when our minds cannot fully comprehend, our faith can apprehend the mystery of him. As Bavink would say, mystery is the lifeblood of dogmatics. Here we're able to apprehend, but not comprehend. He is ultimately, beloved, incomprehensible. So a little bit of the history of this doctrine of simplicity before we get into the text. The simplicity of God is really a doctrine that's been confessed since the early ages of the church. Irenaeus, the three Cappadocians, Augustine, the Scholastics, the Reform, post-Reformation, all have made the simple confession of God without parts. Though confessed and expounded, the concept of simplicity has not always been treated formally as an attribute of God by the church. For example, it was held as true and expounded upon, but not confessed separately as an attribute of God by Charnock. In that volume, The Existence and Attributes of God, Charnock omits, omits the, the doctrine altogether as a formal attribute. Polanus, 
Turretin, Van Maestrich, Abrakel, some of these men's names you have tattooed on your forearms, I'm sure. <laughs> they identify this doctrine of simplicity as a, a defining category, yet not a formal attribute. Some placing it right before their section dealing with the problem of divine attributes. If you've never read on that, I encourage you to do so. More on that in a moment, actually. Calvin himself in Muller's Reformed Dogmatics says this. Uh, Muller says that Calvin indicates no interest whatsoever in speculating about it, but could clearly confess it when necessary as an underpinning of the Christian understanding of God and the related concept of a divine aseity. And that was a considerable thing to him, particularly in his Trinitarian theology. So you may be surprised to know that our own confession never uses the term, but we can't fall into what we call the word concept fallacy here. As one theologian noted, what may be sound logic deduced from Scripture, that is to say, what is necessarily contained in Scripture, has the authority of Scripture itself. Simply because the word is not there does not mean the concept is not there. Our confession articulates the doctrine in a very obvious way by confessing God's oneness. Uh, quote, he is, uh, his subsistence is in and of himself. And quote, he's without parts. And the full statement can be found in chapter 2, paragraph 1, which says God is a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality dwelling in light which no man can approach unto. So this gives us a clue into why the older men did not treat it as a formal attribute and possibly why our own confession does not use the word, yet presents this as a logically deduced doctrine. And we have to say that. It is a doctrine that is primarily deduced from our consideration of God's aseity, his independence, now, I recognize my audience, at least most of them. I hope I don't have to elaborate on that too much. God is in and of himself independent. He's ah say. So when, ta when taking exegetical and historical data into account, this claim is further supported by the scripture reference in the confession. What, what Bible verse do they use to kind of begin to form our minds to think about the doctrine of simplicity? They reference Deuteronomy 6, 14 and 15. It reads this way. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. Etc. So we know that when the confession references scripture, it's giving us more than a proof text. It's giving us a way to think. We see spirituality and the absence of a body in Deuteronomy 6. You saw no form. We see invisibility in Deuteronomy 6. You saw no form. And from this, namely his most pure spirituality, his independence, his aseity, we reason that God has no parts. No body, no parts. Since God's subsistence is in and of himself, he's not made or composed, beloved. He has no components about him. 
unlike the idols of the nations, and I would encourage you this evening, go read Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44 is a scathing testimony to this fact. Further, our confession states in chapter 2, paragraph 3, that we worship one God who is not to be divided in nature and being. So as Baptists, we've confessed God's simplicity twice in one confession. Now, the only confession that I know of that actually uses the word simplicity is the Belgic Confession of 1561. It reads this way, We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God. So this this begins to somewhat clear a way for a definition of divine simplicity. And I'm doing this because for some of us here, this is a brand new thing. We hear God is simple and we're almost offended. No, he's the most complex thing I know, but that's not the case. He is utterly simple. So what is meant by the simplicity of God? To say that God is simple is to confess that he is a perfect unity without composition or division. A most pure spirit, as our confession says, as the Bible says, most basically has no parts, no components. Cars have parts. Houses and humans have parts. Not so with God. He is not the final product of things more ultimate than himself, by which those things added together make God who he is. Well, you must ask, what is a part? What is this guy talking about? What is a part? Have you ever thought about that? We use that language, but we don't know what we're saying. What is a part? It's a thing by which the subject would not be the subject should the subject be without the part. Now, if that just sounds like utter gobbledygook, let me see if I can clear it up with James Dolezal. Maybe not. (laughs) A part, he says, is anything in a subject that is less than the whole and without which the subject would be really different than it is. I am a man. I have hair, or at least I used to. I have eyes, I have ears, I have hands. Should I be without any of those things, and I'm certainly without one of those things, I do not cease in my nature to be a man. Our soul has parts. We're not truly simple, however. My soul, when I sin exposes the fact that I can lack faithfulness, joy, contentment, wisdom in that very soul. Maybe we could frame our consideration in the form of a question. Is there anything that is not God that makes God to be God? Let me say that again. Is there anything that is not God that makes God to be God. Maybe to state it another way, is there a composer of things which is more ultimate than God that puts those things together to make God who he is? Is God a divine Lego that someone put together? A little love, 
a little justice, a little wisdom. Is love and wisdom an attribute more ultimate than God himself? And when you add them together, it makes him who he is. We confess no, beloved. We confess no. God does not have love. Technically, he is love. God does not possess wisdom as a thing he somehow gained by time and experience and knowledge. He is wisdom itself. Is life something God has that he acquired from some other source or composer more ultimate than himself? We confess no. God is the first being. And as Paul says in Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. We have being. He is being. And his life is possessed by none more ultimate than himself. Think of it. Think of it. We're climbing the mountain here. Hang with me. To affirm that God has parts would be an explicit violation of the second commandment. Our minds compose idols and we worship and serve them. Our hands compose idols and we worship and serve them. As the composer of idols, we expose the foolishness of worshiping something we say is more ultimate than us, yet simultaneously composed by us. This is the insanity of idolatry. We worship a thing made by us, yet we say it is more ultimate than us. Now, in a terse manner, and many have used this phrase, and it's a good phrase, divine simplicity confesses that everything in God is God. Everything in God is God. His spirit, his love, his knowledge, his wrath, his wisdom and grace are not parts of him. Possessed by him, held together by some divine superglue of his essence. His attributes are who he is essentially in himself. His essence and his attributes are not separate things, but one in him. Now, this is the foothill of the mountain. Let's take, a, let's take a step up. This fact means God's attributes are identical with his essence. We see this very plainly in the statements we alluded to before. God is spirit. God is light. God is love. Herman Bovink states it this way. The fact of the matter is that scripture... To denote the fullness of the life of God uses not only adjectives, but also substantives. It tells us not only that God is truthful and righteous and living, illuminating, loving and wise, but also that he is truth. He is righteous. He is life, light and love. William Perkins, quoting Augustine here, says, In God... To be and to be just and mighty are all one thing. But the mind of man is not all one to be and to be mighty and or just. For the mind may be destitute of those virtues and yet be a mind. 
This means if we take any attribute away from God, we would render God not God. If I have not love, I remain a man and a bad man. If God is without love, he ceases to be God. To be and to be love is the same thing. And I wish it were more so in me. God's attributes, being identical to his essence, have no potential to become anything other than what they are. God has no potential to be anything other than what he is. He's not in the process of becoming anything. His love cannot grow stronger. His power cannot diminish. His attributes are identical with his essence and all infinite in perfection. But this also means something else that's very stunning for us and very hard to wrestle with if it hasn't already been so far. Not only are God's attributes identical with his essence, this means God's attributes are identical with each other. Hang with me. One theologian writes this, The simplicity of God is the property according to which we conceive the divine nature not only as devoid of all composition and division, but indeed incapable of componability and divisibility. God is devoid of composition and incapable of being divided. Now, I use that term very carefully. The term division is a careful and essential term and must be considered alongside the term distinction. Distinction. We do not confess that God can be divided. We do not confess that God can be divided. 1689 2.3 says as much. He is not to be divided in nature and being. But we do confess that he can be distinguished. My soul can be distinguished from my body just as light can be distinguished from heat. My soul can be distinguished from my body, and I remain alive. But if my soul is divided from my body, I'm a dead man. I say this because there's a real danger in stating the truth that God's attributes are identical to each other, and therefore concluding that God is without distinction. This is not true. Spirit, light, and love do not mean the same thing. They're not just terms attached to the divine being. They are not mere words. Yet they are three statements about these attributes equal to his essence. And we have to think closely here, brothers, especially those as ministers, lest we give up ground on something so vital as the doctrine of the Trinity. Think of it. We do not confess division in the divine essence to say that God is composed of Father, Son, and Spirit. We don't confess division. But we do confess distinctions in the divine essence to say that God subsists as Father, Son, and Spirit. Otherwise, we would have no basis for confessing a distinct communion with each of the persons of the Trinity. Logan would be up here 
every day speaking about things that make no sense in the reality of the life of God. In the same way, as we distinguish these subsistences from each other as true distinctions, yet not divisions, we also, and I think Francis Turretin has it right here, hang with me, we must distinguish his attributes from each other. Turretin says this, Since therefore, in the most simple divine essence, there is ground for forming diverse formal conceptions concerning the divine perfections, and he says, which is evident from those distinct things and seen in Scripture, distinct things in the economy and seen in Scripture, it's best to say that these attributes giving rise to such conceptions are virtually, that is logically, to be distinguished both from the essence and from each other. That means something like this for us. The term Father, Son, and Spirit are not just names. They're not just names within the Holy Trinity. Therefore, we can say that since there are distinctions in the divine essence as Father, Son, and Spirit, we can also say that there are distinctions between the attributes in God, imminently in God, and not simply distinctions in the attributes at extra in their economic effects as God is operating in the world. Trinitarian distinctions among the persons in the one essence, and the older theologians saw this. The, the doctrine of simplicity was not a contradiction to the divine trinity, to the holy trinity. They actually used the argument of simplicity to kind of undergird the doctrine of the trinity. Trinitarian distinctions among the persons in the one essence was a central argument to the distinctions between the attributes of God. Each of these things correlated to one another. God's not merely perceived in our minds as having distinct attributes. This is pure philosophical rationalism. Nor his attributes perceived to be distinct in the economy of salvation alone. But God has attributes in himself that are distinguishable from each other and eminently so. If there's no distinction of attributes, beloved, think of it this way. There very well may be no notion of communicable attributes. Those things by which God relates to us and says, God is love, well, we love like God. Be holy as I am holy means nothing at the end of the day. We have to remember this. The claim of simplicity in God is designed to rule out by negation any and all composition in God, not any and all distinction. Let me say that again. The claim of divine simplicity in God is designed to rule out by negation any and all composition in God, not all distinction. Simplicity is not aiming to rule out by way of eminence any and all distinction. Don't we confess that God has perfections, plural, not a single perfection? He has distinctions and no division. Our minds are not fully able to conceive how these things can be in God imminently in the divine essence. 
but we can distinguish the attributes of the one simple God by seeing their effects in the world. Richard Muller says this, these effects and operations rightly and genuinely reveal the identity of God, indeed the indivisible essence of the utterly simple Godhead. Back to Exodus 3. We've climbed the mountain. What does this have to do with Moses' encounter in the burning bush? There are two places in this encounter with God where we receive the revelation of the simplicity of God. Verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Simply put, this is a revelation of that first thing we talked about, the independence of God. To use older language, it's his aseity. He has life in and of himself. And this is what we see in the burning bush. The fire in the bush was not dependent upon the wood to burn. The fire had no energy source. It was a fire unlike any fire that Moses had ever seen. Every fire has a source from which it burns which is no more basic than the fire itself. No oxygen, no fire. The fire that Moses saw was a pure fire. It was a fire in the bush, yet it was not dependent on the bush for its energy source. In this, we see a revelation of the independence, the aseity of God, and therefore his simplicity. If God is dependent upon anything, someone or something more ultimate than himself had to compose him with more ultimate things than himself. The scripture says every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. The fire that was in the bush, a fire that was nothing but fire, needed nothing but itself to burn. Now it's fascinating here that having pinned, Moses having pinned in the beginning God, Genesis 1, which is also a statement of God's simplicity, first received a space-time revelation of this fact in the burning bush. This grounded Moses' thinking about God. It's the way he could think about God to pin In the beginning, God. What was back of God before the beginning? Nothing. He was there and no one else. But also, there's a second place we see a statement of God's simplicity in the revelation of the divine names given by God to Moses. We have this in the encounter recorded in in the two names. So we see first uh, a revelation of God and who he is in himself. Look at verse 14. God said to Moses, and Moses asked, who do I say sent me to you, to Israel? What is his name? And and God answers Moses, God said to Moses, I am who I am. The revelation of this name came out from the midst of the bush, 
It was intended for Moses to take what he was shown by God in the vision of the bush and correlate those things directly to the revelation of God's name, I am. The self-revelation of I am is the revelation of pure being. It was not I am loving, though that is true, but God revealed himself as I am, a statement of irreducible being. The Septuagint translates it ha own. If you brothers know anything about that, it basically says the one who is. If God is irreducible in his self-revelation, no one is more fundamental than him. No one was behind him, antecedent to him, making him who he is. When he revealed himself as I am, he revealed himself in his simplicity. But we also see this in a revelation of who he is to his people. And this is why I picked the text. Because I'm pretty sure you listened for the first 15 or 20 minutes and thought, how in the world does this apply to me on a Tuesday when my life is falling apart? God, when he revealed himself as I am, also expanded upon that to reveal who he was to his people. Verse 15, the very next verse, God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is an expansion of the singularly simple essence of I am in the economy of salvation. As earlier noted by Muller, this covenant revelation is the effects and operations rightly and genuinely revealing the identity of God. Indeed, he says, the indivisible essence of the utterly simple Godhead. The rest of redemptive history is an unfolding of his singularly simple essence in the salvation of his people. Who God is in the multiplicity of his simple essence is I am. And he's understood and distinguished by his acts in the world. Now, I want to give you a few points of application here. I was asked, I think the original title of this was An Experiential Sermon on Divine Simplicity. I like how we can just throw those titles out and go, handle that, buddy. <laughs> I get it, brothers, I get it. So let me give you some points that I think maybe can just boil this down for us. This has been a lot. It's been a lot. First, simplicity grounds the basic rules of God language. God language, how we speak about God. Moses asked, who shall I say sent me? And it's in the revelation of that name, I am who I am, that Moses received the way in which he would speak about God, not only as he is in and of himself, but as he is in the economy of salvation. The revelation of I am is the underpinning of a Christian understanding of God and especially the Holy Trinity. So 
Simplicity gives us rules for how we speak about God. And we ought not speak about him other than he's revealed himself to be. Simplicity grounds the creator-creature distinction. I think we can say that this direction of God's revelation to us from who he is in and of himself down into the economy of salvation rules out the idea of the philosophical God of the pagans. Plato, Aristotle, and the like present a simple God by, and Bobink says this, eliminating all contrasts and distinctions that characterize creatures and describing him as a being who transcends all contrasts. On the contrary, Bobink says, God's simplicity is the end result of ascribing to God all the perfections of creatures to the ultimate divine degree. Pagan philosophy, as Gregory of Nazianza states, plays with shadows of the truth under the cloak and guise of philosophy. And he was a man who knew Greek philosophy. Aristotle's simple God is not ours, beloved. It's just not. So simplicity grounds the creator and creature distinction. It also grounds the worship of God. In the revelation of the burning bush, God was showing Moses and us that there is nothing more to look for in their object of worship. There's nothing more than him. As the ground of ultimate reality, one who's independent of a composer and components, God was the supreme object of worship because there's no more, nothing more ultimate than him. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Simplicity grounds the worship of God. It also grounds the word of God. It also grounds the word of God. If the revelation of God in the burning bush presented to Moses this ultimate object of worship, then we can quickly see how that presents God as the ultimate revelation. Over and over again, the people of God are called to the ultimacy and singularity of the word of God. The simplicity of his essence undergirds all the confidence we have in his promises. Everything we know about his promises is undergirded by simplicity. And it undergirds his unwavering law. So it it grounds the very word of God. It also grounds the preaching of God. Think of this. We all know Christians. And we as, as pastors are tempted to highlight or dwell exclusively on one attribute to to the neglect of others. Maybe this is due to sin, perhaps the fear of man. But the consideration of God's love in isolation will eventually lead to worshiping a false god. Others may dwell on divine justice, and when considered in isolation, will ultimately lead to worshiping a false god. You see, the the soft-pedaling megachurch pastor and the hard-nosed fire-and-brimstone preacher all have the exact same problem. They don't rightly consider God's simple being and thus fail to preach the whole counsel of God. Simplicity, when rightly understood, makes us think about all of God in light of God and thus speak about all of God in light of God. Simply put, simplicity keeps us honest in the word. 
Paul says, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I do not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Cherry pickers, beware. But lastly, lastly, and thank you for hanging in there, simplicity grounds our sanctification. Simplicity grounds our sanctification. It grants us a deep consideration of the archetype of our sanctification. Think of it. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah saw himself in the light of a holy God, what did he say? Woe is me. I am undone. In other words, he saw himself as a disintegrated man, shattered into non-existence. He saw all the parts about him that contradicted God, which were out of harmony within himself and bore no correlation to that singular holiness to which he was called. The singularity, beloved, of our love for God is a commanded echo of the greater reality that God is simple and therefore not self-conflicted. God is not divided. Thus his love is not divided among various things. This is what I would like to call catechism question zero. Catechism question zero. We ask what is the chief end of man, but we need to ask something more fundamental than that. What is the chief end of God? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. God could not set a greater goal before us than himself because he has no greater goal than himself. And so we're commanded, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In sanctification, it's the multiplicity of who you are being united into a singular love unto God. What does David say in Psalm 86, 11? Unite my heart that I would fear your name. Unite my heart. Make the disparate and contradictory parts of my heart united in singular love for you, O God. The singular, simple essence of God is grounds for the uniting of a disparate part, the disparate parts of us, into one heart of worship. If we can fathom a God in contradiction to himself, we can never expect to be any more than a contradictory people. Well, beloved, I end here. These are deep things to consider, and I literally have just scratched the surface. May the Lord grant us a deep consideration of these things. All glory be to the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, would you sanctify to our hearts and our minds what we've heard? The things that we didn't understand, O oh Lord, would you help us not to 
shake them off as things that we don't need to consider, but that we would wrestle with those things and maybe we walk away limping after the fact, but we will be changed forever. Would you help us to see these things clearly from your word? Would you help us to consider them deeply? And would you unite our hearts, Lord, that we may fear your name? In Christ's name I pray, amen.